Well, good morning. Today is uh, Palm Sunday. It's the uh, day that we celebrate our Lord's coming into Jerusalem to all of the shouts and praises of the people. People were thinking that here was the one that would finally conquer Rome and free the people of Israel from uh, Rome's uh, hated domination. But uh, through our narration, we've traced the movement from the triumphal entry to the cross. When people realized that Jesus wasn't going to meet their expectations, that he wasn't going to buy into their limited agendas, that their plans would be frustrated, their selfishness would not be pandered to, they turned on him with vehemence and hatred. And that anger led them to cry out for his crucifixion, demanding that Jesus be placed on the cross. That, uh, that, that the human heart was exposed, and it demanded that the Son of God be placed on the cross to die. In fact, for the last several weeks, we've been looking squarely at the cross, feeling the impact of its message. Well, this morning we're going to finish that look at the cross. It's important to realize that a critical transition is taking place here. Jesus was on the cross for six hours. We've looked at the first three. During those first three hours, the focus is on humanity. We see the, the, the cruelty, the stupidity of humanity. But at the same time, we see Jesus' amazing love, his strength, gentleness, his forgiveness. But the focus is on what humanity did to him. During those first three hours, Jesus seems to give absolutely no concern for himself. Uh, His concern seems to be for all those around him. His words are for the women of Jerusalem. His heart breaks for them and for us. His words are for the cro- are the thief on the cross. He speaks words of comfort and forgiveness to him and to us. His words are for us. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the face of the reality that Jesus knew well, that our sins put him on the cross to suffer that pain and humiliation, his concern is still for us. Well, during these next three hours, something else is going on here. During the time up to the cross, during those first three hours, Jesus was suffering at the hand of man. He was suffering all of the hatred and, and, and spite, ignominy, humiliation that man could heap upon him. And he suffered that w- without self-pity, without any complaint. But now, during these last three hours, Jesus suffers at the hand of God. Let's take a look. If you've got a Bible, open to uh, Luke 23. We're going to pick up at verse 44. Jesus is on the cross. Luke 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. Now the sixth hour was high noon. Jesus had been put on the cross about nine o'clock in the morning, and now three hours later, 
it's noon, when the sun should be shining its brightest. But we're told the sun stopped shining. Now, we don't know what exactly happened here. We know that it wasn't an eclipse because the, the lunar calendar is organized in such a way that the Passover always falls on a new moon, or, or excuse me, not a new moon, a full moon. And it's impossible to have an eclipse on a full moon. The moon's on the wrong side of the earth to block the sun. That's why it's a full moon. The sun's shining on it. So there cannot be an eclipse on a full moon. So we don't really know uh, how God did it or what exactly God did, but God caused the darkness to cover the face of the earth. This wasn't just a, a cloud blocking the sun in, in Palestine. This wasn't just a local phenomena. This was a, a, a global phenomenon. We have a, uh, the report of Phlegon, a Roman historian, who records what he calls a, an extraordinary eclipse and an earthquake at this time. Now, again, we know it wasn't a, an ordinary eclipse, but he's got no other explanation for it. And there's mention from North Africa about a darkness that covered the earth at this time. Again, no one can explain it. And we don't know exactly what God did. But the sun no longer gave its light to the earth. Why? Because the Son of God no longer gave his light. He was separated from the Father. And we don't know how God did it. We don't know exactly physically what happened. But we know why. He did it as a symbolic testimony to the sacrifice of his son. And creation couldn't help but be affected. The universe couldn't just act like nothing was happening. The son of God was dying and the father turned his back on his son. We we're told in the other gospels that it was during this darkness that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it's interesting, he, he doesn't call God his Father at that time. He calls him God. Jesus had completely identified with humanity. He became the representative of mankind. He, our sins were laid on him. He became sin for us. And his agony was because he was suffering the effects of sin. You know, theologians have argued about when and how Jesus went to hell. Uh, there are scriptures that indicate that he, he, he suffered hell for us, that he went there and announced his victory. But the reality is Jesus went to hell before he even died. He suffered hell for us while he hung there on the cross. Ultimately, hell is separation from God. Wages of sin is death, spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God. What Jesus was experiencing as he hung there on the cross was that separation from God. When, when the Father turned his back on Jesus because he's too holy to look upon sin, Jesus experienced all of the misery and the agony that sin causes. You see, sin makes us miserable. 
Look at the face of a, of a selfish child. Look at the misery of a child that's all wrapped up in selfishness. A tantrum is just an expression of that internal pain that sin causes. And think of yourself, of the, of the guilt, of the, of the misery you feel when you're acting selfishly, focused on yourself. It makes you mean. It, it makes you hateful. It makes you angry because it makes you so miserable inside. Now multiply that misery by billions for all of the people who've ever lived and for all of the times each of us have sinned. And the horror of of that is almost unthinkable. The agony, the, the abject misery. Now add to that the reality that Jesus had never before experienced the eternal, internal effects of sin. So he had always enjoyed the, the peace, the security of walking in fellowship with his father. He had never felt guilt. He had never experienced that, that blow to his, self, his self-image, self-respect. He had never experienced the, the frustration and, and the rage at living in a way that w- was out of sync, inconsistent to why he lived, why humanity was created. See, we know those feelings all too well. We taste them every day. Even those of us who've experienced the power of forgiveness and and the way that mitigates those feelings, those feelings are still horrible. Just the other day, my back was hurting, I was tired, I was irritable. I was acting selfishly. Before the evening was over, I had screamed at my kids. I had completely withdrawn from my wife, cut her off. I was miserable. Literally, I walked into the bathroom and stared at myself in the mirror, and I wanted to die. See, that's what sin feels like. And again, Jesus had never felt that horrible disquiet of his soul. Multiply that for all of humanity and consider the crushing impact of the contrast to what he had always felt. See, the the horror is almost unthinkable. And just as unthinkable is the reality that his father, his God, put this burden on him. Jesus was suffering at the hand of God. Listen to some of uh, Isaiah's words from Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we saw him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He, didn't, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and injustice he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him, 
and cause him to suffer. And though Yahweh makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his experience, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give him the portion of the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was hung on the cross by the will of man. But did you hear what that said? Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. See, it was Yahweh's will to offer him as the perfect sacrifice. Man, this is so important for us to understand. Jesus didn't just die as the perfect example of love, though he is that example. He didn't just die as the proof of the sinfulness of humanity, though his death gives that proof. Something far greater, more glorious is going on here. See, Jesus died as the ultimate Passover lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus died for our peace. He died for our healing. He died to take away the, the, the power and effects of sin in our lives. To free us, to release us from that. He died to, to, to take our judgment He died in our place. He experienced the effects of sin so that we don't have to. He he was cut off from the Father with all of that, that, that means so that we don't have to be. Again, He became our substitute. He took it all for us. This is called the substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place so that we might receive life. Spiritual life. Eternal life. And that is to know the Father. To be able to live in fellowship with Him. In His presence. So again, Jesus didn't just die as an example. He died as our substitute so that we could enjoy the presence, fellowship with the Father. That's why Jesus came to this earth. Look at uh, Luke's next words. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now the curtain of the temple was the the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, the, the place in the temple where God dwelt, where He lived. People were not allowed into the Holy of Holies. Just one time a year, after elaborate preparation and purification, the high priest, and he alone, was allowed to go in there for a very brief time. So other than that one once a year time, briefly, by the high priest, humanity was not allowed in the presence of God. But when Jesus bore our sins, became our sacrifice. The, the, the curtain was torn in two. The way to God was opened. 
we, you and I, we can, we can, because of Christ's blood, His sacrifice, come into the presence of God. And that's life. That's what life is all about. That's what we were created for, to be in fellowship with Him. And it's there and only there that we find our true meaning, that we find peace, joy, and satisfaction. Not only did the, uh, the tearing of the curtain symbolize that, that, that we could go into the presence of God, in a sense it also symbolized that God came out. God no longer lived in the temple. He lives in us, His people. See, our fellowship with Him, our unity with Him is now complete and constant. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to come into the presence of God. See, the fact is, if we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, all we have to do is to go inside ourselves and there make contact with our Father. He is always with us. And we can be conscious of His presence and His love at any time, all the time. That's the significance of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Then we're told that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus again calls God Father, and he trusts his Father even now. Jesus lived by faith and he died by faith. In, the, uh, in Mark's account, in fact, all the other accounts, we are told that right before this, Jesus cried out, It is finished. He had done it. He had paid for man's sin. He had been the Passover lamb. It's about, it's right at three o'clock now. Inside the city, the, uh, the priests had been preparing the Passover sacrifices and what would happen is right at 3 o'clock, one of the priests would go stand at the pinnacle of the temple and he would blow the shafar, that's the name they have for the ram's horn. And as he blew that horn, as it sounded in the temple, the other priest would sacrifice the lamb. It's possible that Jesus heard the blast of the shofar as he hung there on the cross outside the city. And right at the moment that the knife was cutting into the flesh of the lamb, its throat was being slit and its life's blood was being poured out, Jesus, our Passover lamb, died. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have you ever asked God to receive that payment, to accept that payment for your sins? for your sinful attitudes and behavior? Have you ever asked Him to forgive you? Jesus died for that forgiveness. It's your greatest need. And it will be your joy, your healing. If you never have, please do that right now. That's His heart, His desire. That's why He did it all. So that you might experience the life of a relationship with Him, of fellowship with Him.
Well, Luke now turns his attention to the people around Jesus. Verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now, in Mark's account, he adds that the centurion said, This man is the Son of God. Centurion was, was the Roman officer in charge of the whole execution. This guy had probably seen hundreds of deaths. But as he watched and as he listened, this one was different. This Roman centurion is the first person to have responded to the death of Christ. Remember why the people turned on Jesus, why they were so angry with him? Because Jesus refused to conquer Rome. Well, Jesus did conquer Rome, starting with this man's heart. Verse 49 or 48. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. See, these people had started out mocking. They had started out uh, uh, taunting and jeering at Jesus. All of the venom of their heart poured out, and they were laughing and mocking. But when it was all done, they were sobered and sickened. They walked away disgusted with themselves and what they had done. They still didn't understand it. They couldn't comprehend it, but they knew it was big. Now, 50 days after this, at Pentecost, Peter stands up to the same group of people and explains to them what had happened. And when they hear this, they're stricken to their heart and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? Peter tells them, and 3,000 of them gave their lives to the Savior that day. Verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. When the crowds went away, the the people that were left were the people who knew Jesus. The space between uh, them and Jesus, which had been filled with all these people, was now empty and they're left standing at a distance. Here are the the, the Galilean women, the the women who had ministered with Jesus and to Jesus all along. But in the end, they were helpless to minister to him. They were lost, confused. There were probably several disciples with them. We know John had at least had been there because John and Jesus' mother Mary had been right up next to the cross. And Jesus had spoken to them. But somehow, maybe... As time went on, they became more confused, perhaps afraid, and and they drifted to the back of the crowd. You know, it's, it's very natural when we don't know what to do, when we're confused, we don't know how to help. We kind of pull away. Sometimes when we see someone hurting, we don't know what to say. We don't know how to help. We just kind of pull back and leave them alone. We become afraid. This is just one of our weaknesses. It's part of the reason that we need our Lord to give us courage, to teach us how to love. We see this this same tendency in Joseph, whom Luke talks about next in verse 50. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, 
and placed it on a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now, Joseph was a very wealthy man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling court, the ruling body of Israel. He was a good man, a godly man. But again, when the chips were down, he didn't know what to do. He was afraid, so he backed off. He absented himself from Jesus' trial. We're told that when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, all of them condemned him. It was unanimous. So Joseph must have just stayed away. Again, there's that human weakness. I uh, can identify, so I'm sympathetic. This is one of my uh, areas of sin. Really, it's lack of faith that God can give us the words to say, to love someone, that God can use us even when we don't know what to do. And it's the selfishness of self-protection that causes us to back away and to act this way. And may God open our eyes and show us ourselves, teach us to really love, to, to love the way that that he loves. You know, sometimes when we see someone slipping away from God, slipping into sin, how often, again, we back away, we back off. When what God calls us to do is to love each other enough to come after each other, remind each other of God's love, his goodness, the life that he offers. Again, may we learn to love like Jesus loved when he came after us. Anyway, now that uh, Jesus is dead in the weight of, of the reality of what's happened, in the weight of his own part of it, Joseph then uh, goes to, to Pilate, asks for Jesus' body. Then he, then he takes the body down from the cross, he cleans it up, and he takes it off to bury it. We're told in, in uh, John's account that Nicodemus was with him. And Nicodemus brought with him about 70 pounds of spices. So the two of them are having to hurry. It's almost the Sabbath when they couldn't do any work. Sabbath began at sundown, so and it's late evening by this time. Remember, Jesus died right about 3 o'clock, so we're probably talking 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. And they're hurrying. They're racing the time. They take Jesus to a, a new tomb, one in which no one had ever been laid, an empty tomb. And they place him in there, wrapped in the linen and the spices. Verse 55. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. See, these women also wanted to express their love to Jesus, take care of the body. Now that Jesus was dead, they knew what to do. They didn't feel so helpless. They wanted to, to, to go and, and, and prepare the body. They wanted to add to what Joseph and Nicodemus had already done. But time ran out on them, and they couldn't go. They had to wait until the Sabbath was over. Now, the point of these last several verses really is that Jesus is dead. See, the centurion 
who had seen hundreds of deaths, knew what death looked like, he saw that Jesus was dead. That's why it hit him so hard. These women who knew Jesus, Luke points out that they knew him. They weren't making any mistake. The wrong guy hadn't been crucified. There was no mistaken identity. There wasn't a body switch. They're burying the wrong person. These women knew him, knew that that's who it was. Joseph and Nicodemus, when they they took the body to the grave, they they wrapped it in linen and 70 pounds of spices. If Jesus hadn't been dead by that point, the, the linen and the gummy spices over his face would have suffocated him. It would have killed him. They laid him in a new tomb, one in which there were no other bodies. There's no possibility of confusion of which, which he was in. And again, these women, it says, they watched it all. They stood back, they followed, they, they paid attention to every detail. They watched it from the cross to the grave. There is no possibility of mistake. Jesus is dead. The light that had come into the world is out. The Son of God stopped shining. The darkness that had covered the earth for millennia prior to Jesus' coming was now even more profound. The hope of of the people was crushed. The hope of the disciples was crushed. The hope of, of Joseph who had been waiting for the kingdom, is crushed. The hope of Mary Magdalene and Salome and Mary the mother of James and the other women that were together is crushed. From the perspective of humanity, all hope is gone. God is dead. Now that's where we uh, will be leaving our story today. We know the end. We know what happens next week. But we wanted to, to leave this week recognizing, experiencing some of, of this horrible reality. See, unless we taste the, the darkness of this moment, the, the, the horror of the cross, we can't experience the, and really feel the true joy of the resurrection Easter next week. So we are, again, knowing deep in our hearts what happens next week. We are wanting to end this week just aware of this reality. God is dead. We live in in a world today where some people actually believe that God is dead. And most people live as if God were dead. That is abject Hopelessness. Sometimes for those of us who have known the Lord for a while, we've lost that sense. We've lost how hopeless that really is. I know for myself, when I first became a believer, how stunned I was to what happened inside of me, the freedom from that hopelessness, that dissatisfaction. And now that I've been a believer for, for I don't know how many years, I lose track of that. But our world lays in that darkness because they've closed their eyes to the, to the light of the world, the Son of God. Again, what abject hopelessness. Let's pray.
Lord, as we see the reality of what you've done for us, we are shocked, not just because of what humanity did to you. What really is shocking is that this was your plan from the beginning and that your Father chose to put you through this. And Lord, as we, those of us especially who have children, contemplate the pain of the Father in choosing this for you, in watching His Son go through this, it's even more beyond understanding that He could endure that, allow you to suffer like this for us. Lord, as we uh, go into this week, we want to think about the reality of this darkness. That you did give up your life. And that at that point, the world was in darkness. Lord, we just uh, look forward to the reality to the experience of the resurrection. Again, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would experience that resurrection today in their heart. They would know your life today in their heart. Just pray this in your name. Amen.